Good morning, everyone. And thank you, Pete, and thank you all for inviting me along this morning to share something of the ministry of Open Doors. But before that, as Pete said, we need to unpack that well-known passage from Scripture of Jesus calming the storm. Now, I, like every pastor and every Bible teacher, work hard to, to try and understand the, the real meaning of our scriptures. And so we, we learn biblical languages. We look up concordances. We consult commentaries. All in the hope of shedding some light on what are the two key questions of interpretation. And they are, firstly, who wrote the text and what did they mean by it? And secondly, who originally heard or read the text and what on earth did they make of it? Now, all good interpretation begins with with the tools that answer these two questions. And we're taught that these tools lie in the realm of scholarship. So, so most pastors take to their studies or their libraries accordingly. But you know, there is another often overlooked tool that I believe is vital in giving us a key to the meaning of our scriptures. And that tool is the persecuted church. The persecuted church of today represents the closest that we can come to the original writers and readers of our scriptures. You see, most of this was written by persecuted people. And it was written for persecuted people. And it's by interacting with them that we gain a unique insight into the the real, the true meaning of our scriptures. And we really need their help. Because what is obvious to a persecuted Christian is not at all obvious to us. Because we live in a completely different world, a completely different universe to them. And we need the persecuted to remind us of what life was like in biblical times. I heard about a a pastor not so long ago who was preaching in the West. He He was preaching on that passage that we've just heard of Jesus calming the storm. And his whole talk was based on on how Jesus can calm the storms that rage in our everyday lives. And so he named storms like loneliness, illness, addiction, broken relationships. He even mentioned persecution. And he said, Jesus can deliver you from every single one of these storms, just like he did with the disciples of old. And he was about to go on, and, well, some preachers have the habit of going on, when, when there was an old man in the congregation who stood up. This man was from a Middle Eastern country. He had seen and had experienced much suffering. He said, gently and respectfully, my dear brother, if you had been persecuted, you would know the meaning of this passage. The point of the story is not that Jesus takes the storm away, but there is no need to fear the storm if Jesus is in the boat. Everyone stared at him in silence. 
And this old man continued. This passage is given to us to provide comfort in the face of terrible storms. To know that Jesus is in the boat with us. So the storm will do us no harm. So that persecuted Christian, because he had been persecuted, knew the meaning of that passage far better than that preacher ever could. Because he was one of those for whom the passage was originally written. So we need the persecuted. And today, we estimate that there are something in the region of 260 million of our Christian brothers and sisters who are persecuted for no other reason than they've given their lives to Jesus. 260 million. And that is where Open Doors comes in, trying to to minister to them, to serve our persecuted brothers and sisters. This is the new 2020 World Watch list. A list of 50 countries where it's most difficult or dangerous to be a Christian. Open Doors began in 1955 when God called a young Dutchman to smuggle Bibles behind what was then the Iron Curtain. He became known the world over as God's smuggler, or Brother Andrew. And we still do smuggle Bibles into places where it's difficult or illegal to own them. Places like North Korea, much of the Middle East, and North Africa. But as well as providing Bibles and other Christian literature, we do an awful lot of training, of training of church leaders, pastors, Sunday school workers, youth workers. We do a lot of secular training. Because in many of these countries where we operate, it's difficult for Christians to get a job. And so we will teach people hairdressing, dressmaking, carpentry, plumbing, computer technology, horticulture. So that they can set up themselves in a small business and then earn a living and feed and clothe their family. But before we do that, in many places, particularly with women... We undertake literacy training because in a lot of these countries, a girl's role is not to be at school receiving an education, to be in the home, helping their mothers with the cooking, the cleaning, and looking after younger siblings. And so very often we will take the only textbook we often we only use, which is the Bible, and teach them to read and write. Then we offer micro-loans to help people set themselves up in business. There's trauma care and counselling, advocacy work, emergency relief, and so the list goes on. But every year we issue a new report based on the statistics from the previous year called the World Watch List. And for the last five years, we've been invited into Westminster, into the Houses of Parliament, to launch our new list. And just last week... On Wednesday, this is Pastor Abdallah from Aleppo in Syria, who's on the front page of our report, copies of which are on the table. The main printed copies aren't available until next month, but I managed to, um, shall we say, borrow a few from the launch (laughs) on Wednesday. But at that launch, 123 MPs came along to support us. That is an amazing number, the most we have ever had. 123 MPs gathered together in this Commons Committee room to hear what was happening to our Christian family around the world. 
As I say, it didn't start like that. It started many years ago when Brother Andrew used his old beaten-up blue Volkswagen to, uh, to smuggle those Bibles. And this is Brother Andrew much more recently. He's now 94 years of age. Uh, not involved in the day-to-day running of the ministry anymore. His legs won't let him do that. But he's still a spiritual tower of strength. Open Doors operates in over 70 countries in total. But the country that has topped the list for the last 18 years now is North Korea. In North Korea, it is a crime to be a Christian. In North Korea, you are told what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to think. People in North Korea are not people, but robots. And as a North Korean, to choose Jesus is to choose to die. If you are caught with just one page of scripture, if you are caught praying or mentioning the name God or Jesus, you and three generations of your family will be carted off to one of their notorious camps. Instead, you are expected, forced, to bow down to worship the only divine beings that they recognize, which is the Kim dynasty. Here in Pyongyang, these huge bronze statues of Kim Il-sung, the founder of North Korea, his son, King Yong-il, and of course, they worship their present leader, Kim Jong-un. This lady's name is Hei Wu. Any of you who might have been at Spring Harvest or New Wine last year would have met or heard Hei Wu. She is a North Korean. She was imprisoned in the notorious Yongiri prison where prisoners are interrogated, where they are kicked, they have their bones broken by the guards with wooden hammers, She was one of 200 women that was kept in a cage. And she said it was only big enough for 50. And yet there were 200. So they had to take it in turns, not only to sleep, but to sit down. 200 women in a confined space. No sanitary equipment. No running water. They survived on one cup of water and one cup of rice or corn a day. The toilet was a hole in the corner. There were rats running around, blood-sucking insects. Conditions were atrocious. But, amazingly, she was released weighing just three and a half stone. North Koreans have a habit of releasing people shortly before they die. She was now banished from Pyongyang because only the... um, supporting class, can live in the capital city. If you're a Christian, you're a member of the hostile class, and therefore you're banished to the hill country in the north. She stayed with a family where she recovered some of her strength. While she was there, the young daughter, who was in her 20s of that family, was diagnosed with breast cancer. So Hei Wu got the family together, placed her hand on the young woman's breast and prayed. They did that every day for a fortnight. And at the end of the fortnight, the lump had gone. The whole family became Christians. 
But they couldn't worship God in the way they wanted to. They couldn't pray together. Even in their own home, they certainly couldn't sing out loud. And so what they would do, they would go for a walk in the woods. And there, in the quietness, in the stillness, with no one around, they would offer their praises to God. And one day when they were doing that, there was a huge rainbow in the sky, but it wasn't a brightly colored rainbow, the ones we're used to. It was just pure white. And Haywood took that as a sign from God that now was the time for her to escape because North Korea was not a place for her to live anymore. It's a long story, but basically she found her way to the River Tumen, which borders North Korea and northeast China. She was a a non-swimmer, and there'd been a lot of rain, and the river was flowing fast. She put her foot in and her leg, and it wasn't long before she was swept away and actually went under the water. She fell unconscious and then woke up on the riverbank on the Chinese side. As she climbed the bank, she saw this electric fence all the way along the riverbank. She was praying, and as Koreans do with her hands together, she was bowing. And as she got more intense in her prayers and her bowing got deeper, her forehead touched the wire. And she realized it wasn't on. She was just praising God for that fact when, when God showed her a, a branch of a tree lying just a little further down the riverbank. So she, she's only five foot tall, but she lugged this branch up the bank, threw it on the fence, which created a big enough gap for her to climb through. And then the next miracle was that this was October and it never snows in that part of the world in October, but this day it did. It was a heavy snowfall. And so as she ran across the fields, the snow came and covered her footsteps. So that when the Chinese patrols came along, as they did every half an hour or so, they would not see anyone had been in the field. She eventually found her way to an open-door safe house where we looked after her and managed to get her to South Korea, where she now lives with her son, who escaped a few years before her. So North Korea is the most difficult and the most dangerous place to be a Christian. But the most violent place to be a Christian is actually northern Nigeria. It's number 12 on our world watch list. And this is just one of 13,000 churches that have been destroyed by the Islamist group Boko Haram. Last year, we know that there were 3,731 Nigerians killed for their faith. That's 90% of the world's total Christian martyrs last year. Surprising statistic. And the United Nations has estimated there are 2.1 million internally displaced people, both Muslims and Christians, who have been forced out of their homes, their towns, their cities, by the activities of Boko Haram. But Open Doors has been working in Nigeria for many, many years. This is one of 17 schools that Open Doors operated that I visited in Kitsina State, way up in the north. And why are we involved in education? Well, if you're a Christian child, you may be one of five or six Christians in a class of 60, 70, 80 children. And as a group of Christian children, you will be placed at the back. So you can't hear properly, you can't see properly. 
You can be a real, real swat, if you like, doing your work, doing your homework, handing it in on time, and it might or might not get marked. But no matter how well you think you've done, you will get low marks because you're a Christian. And you can sit the exam at the end of the year, but you will fail it because you're a Christian. Which is why Christian parents try to send at least one of their children to a school like this, where not only will they be safe, but they'll receive a decent education and have a chance of a decent career when they're a bit older. Similarly with health provision. If you're a Christian, you're at the end of the queue. You can be living in your village in rural Nigeria when you suffer a life-threatening situation, a heart attack, a, a stroke, whatever it might be. You'll be rushed to the nearest town, to the hospital, where you'll just be kept waiting and waiting. And while you're waiting, other patients, Muslim patients, will be brought in with a broken leg, something in their eye, whatever it might be. They'll be patched up and sent off home. But you're still waiting. And if you happen to die while you're waiting, no matter, you're only a Christian. Which is why we provide clinics like this one, staffed by Nurse Abraham. He's helped by two part-time nurses and a doctor visits once a week, providing that primary care in these villages. And then there's that basic necessity of life, water. In many North Nigerian villages, if you're a Christian, you are not allowed to draw water from the village well. The reason being, the Muslims will say, by your very presence, because you're there, because you touch the well, you contaminate their water supply. And so Christian parents will send their children, eight, nine, ten-year-old children, to the nearest water supply, which could be a river five miles away. So if you imagine you're a 10-year-old with a bucket, you're walking through the bush five miles, you're filling the bucket up, not with clean water, because of course that's where the animals drink. You're putting it on your head and you're walking the five miles back. And that one bucket of water has to last the family all day for drinking, cooking, washing, cleaning. And the next day when it's gone, that same child has that same 10-mile round trip. And the next day, and the next day. And yet for just 200 pounds we can drill a borehole like this one to provide fresh, clean water for that Christian community. When I was in uh, Kaduna State, we were taken way out in the middle of nowhere, quite literally, middle of the African bush, and there was this barn. And in that barn, various people came to meet with us, including, including... Including these three farmers. Now, the soil quality in that part of Nigeria is diabolical, and the government recognized this, so, so they provide each farmer with a sack of fertilizer each year. But if you're a group of, say, eight or ten Christian farmers around a particular village, the village will get one sack of fertilizer to share amongst everybody. Well, when Open Doors found out about this and thought it was unfair, we began giving fertilizer to each farmer. Not so they would have more than their Muslim neighbors, but they would have the same. And this, the chap on the left, he said to me, 
I used to get between 11 and 12 sacks of maize from my land. But after just one year with Open Doors Fertilizer, I got 20 sacks. And he said, now this is the second year and it looks like I might get nearly 40 sacks. My family are living like kings, he said. And then there was this lady. Not that lady. (laughs) That lady. This lady's name is Mary. When she was introduced to me and realized I was from Open Doors, she burst into song and dance. There on this earthen floor barn in the middle of nowhere, she was dancing around, clapping her hands, singing her praises to Jesus. And when she stopped, which was after several minutes, she, she couldn't say thank you enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I wondered what she was saying thank you for, but it was because Open Doors had given her two goats. And both goats had been pregnant. Both goats delivered twins. So she now had six goats. And she said, the nannies are pregnant again. She was going to have more than enough milk and cheese and meat for her family. In fact, too much. So she was going to be able to sell the excess to meet other family needs. But people like those farmers and people like Mary, they're the lucky ones. As I say, the United Nations estimate there are 2.1 million people forced from their homes in northern Nigeria. And if you're a Christian, you don't go to the official government camps because there again, you're at the bottom of the pile when it comes to food handouts. And and if you or any member of your family need medical assistance, well, you can sing in the wind because you won't get it. So Christians tend to go to family and friends if they can, if not to places like this. This is St. Teresa's Convent, just outside Yola, the capital in Adamawa State. When I was there, there were 7,500 Christians in makeshift tents or under tarpaulins. And we were there, we took in a whole convoy of food aid. And this is Eddie Lyle, our president, and four black church leaders from London who we took with us, offering a blessing over the food. But being open doors, it's not only food for the body that we provide. We provide food for the soul as well, because with every food handout, we gave the family a Bible. Because many of these people have been forced to leave at a moment's notice. Some were in the fields working when Boko Haram came along. They didn't even have time to go home and get anything. They just ran for their lives. This is a large Lutheran church in Yola City. And it was there when we met with many people, including this man, Pastor Idi Garba. He said, I used to have a church of some four to five hundred people. But Boko Haram came and started attacking. Their attacks increased until they were a daily occurrence. And he said, I've lost count of how many people I've buried. Those that weren't killed ran for their lives and his congregation went down to less than 20. But he said with a big smile on his face, but God didn't tell me to leave. And Open Doors enabled him to stay by paying his salary for six months. And when I last spoke to him, he told me that Boko Haram have moved away from that area and his congregation had started returning in dribs and drabs. It was now back up to about the 200 mark. But he said, they're all women and children, because all the men are dead. 
He was just one of 50 pastors who we met and heard their often traumatic stories. We met and prayed with victims of Boko Haram. These women had all been gang-raped and seen their husbands murdered in front of their eyes. We prayed with them. We read scripture together. We cried with them. These people you won't know by name, but you'll know the town they're from. They're all from the town of Chibok. Four years ago now, Boko Haram kidnapped 300 schoolgirls. 113 of them are still missing. These are some of their parents. One of them, named Joseph, he said to me, Pastor Roger, what do I say to my wife when she wakes up screaming in the night? Pastor Roger, how can I make her eat? Because I see her wasting away in front of my eyes. I gave each of them one of the wooden holding crosses and said to them, when you pray, hold on to this, because remember that Jesus is always with you. But not only Jesus, remember that there are people all over the world praying for you and your daughters. People like Maggie Goodchild in Bobby Tracy Baptist Church. Because I also gave them, as well as a cross, a copy of a photograph that you can see them holding, taken from that church. Because Maggie, when she first heard of this abduction, was praying and God gave her an idea. So she got together with a few friends and they took great big pieces of plain paper, folded it concertina style, drew half a girl, cut it out, and then you know what's going to happen when you open it up. You end up with a a whole string of paper dolls or paper girls, ten in a row. They did that 30 times, so they had 300. They coloured each one in, on and each one put the name of one of the abducted girls on a list that we were able to supply them with. And every day since then, To today, every single day, a group of people go into Bobby Tracy Baptist Church and pray for those girls and their families by name. When I told these parents that, they just sobbed. They could not believe that people so far away would be so faithful in their prayers for them and their daughters. But it's not just Boko Haram. There are Fulani herdsmen who also attack Christian farms. They allow their cattle to feed on the crops, and when they've eaten them all, we'll move on to the next farm. And many of these Fulani herdsmen are but child soldiers. And if you as a farmer object to what they're doing, well, then you're just killed on the spot. I want to share with you a story about Esther. Esther was 17 when her village was attacked. Her parents were murdered, And she was taken away to the Boko Haram camp, where she was used firstly as a sex slave and then married off to one of the fighters. Pressure was brought on her to convert to Islam, but she said, if I perish, I perish, but I will never become a Muslim. She added, I cannot count how many times men raped me. Every time they came back from their attacks, they would rape us. Having been married off to one of the fighters, she became pregnant. One day, while they were all out on one of their attacks, she saw an opportunity to escape. So, heavily pregnant, about eight months, she just ran and ran 
and ran through the bush. After many days, she made it back to her grandparents' house, where she was taken in but not accepted by her grandmother because she could no longer call her her granddaughter because she had been defiled. And when the baby, the girl, was born, her grandmother never referred to her by the name that Esther gave her of Rebecca, but instead always referred to her as Baby Boko, which was a constant reminder of the ordeal that she'd been through. But amazingly, she, Esther went to one of our trauma care centers. She was one of the first at this new center just outside Joss, where she received professional help how to cope with the trauma that she's been through. Moving on to another continent, another country, India. India has risen up our list and is increasingly difficult for Christians. The Indian government is led by the BJP, which is a Hindu nationalist party. And they believe that being Hindu is part of Indian identity. Therefore, to be Indian is to be Hindu, to be Hindu is to be Indian. That means that they turn a blind eye to attacks on anybody who is not a Hindu. And the RSS is a militant wing of the BJP who have publicly stated they want to see India rid of all Muslims and all Christians by the end of 2021. So attacks on Christians, their businesses, their homes, their churches are increasing month by month. We know that 635 people were detained without trial last year and more than 23,000 Indian Christians were either physically or mentally abused. This is Pastor Kama. He was set upon by a mob whilst he was out visiting some of his church members in their homes. He was beaten so severely he nearly died. These are all wives of men who have been imprisoned on trumped-up charges purely because they're Christians. And this young man, he, his grandfather was a Hindu priest, but when he was a, just a child of nine years of age, he became seriously ill with a life-threatening situation. Christians in his neighborhood got together and prayed, and he recovered. He became a Christian. He's now a Christian pastor, but is often on the receiving end of beatings. In fact, he was riding his motorcycle with his wife as pillion. She was heavily pregnant. When they were attacked, forced off their bike and beaten. The result of which was she lost the baby. But he said, I am staying here. God has called me here. And God, God has told me to plant a hundred churches in neighboring villages. What bravery. What faith. And to a country that you will have seen a lot from in the last uh, eight, nine years, Syria, where almost half a million have been killed since the trouble started back in 2011. And we're so used to seeing complete devastation in towns and cities across the country. Where again, people have been forced from their homes to live in crowded apartments or worse, in camps, either in the country or in refugee camps in neighboring Lebanon. But things are improving. ISIS has been all but defeated, 
and people are gradually returning to their devastated homes. And open doors, we've been working in Syria and Iraq for many, many years. But this is a new pharmacy that we've just opened in Aleppo, where Muslims as well as Christians are provided with, with the medicines that they need. Also in Aleppo, we've opened a t-shirt factory providing employment. And in Homs, a sewing factory making embroidered dresses, but also making clergy investments, you know, like the Anglican vicars wear. In fact, the embroidery is so intricate that they're now receiving orders from around the world. Last year, I visited Lebanon. I went to the Bekaa Valley, which is, you know, somewhere steeped in biblical history. Very fertile valley where there are over half a million Syrian refugees living in tents. And here in the town of Zahla is True Vine Church, where we have helped fund the rebuilding of the church, which now houses a school in the basement for some of those refugee children. Just round the corner from the school is one of our distribution centers, providing much-needed food aid. And then in Iraq, where many, many churches have been destroyed, many people again forced from their homes. And Open Doors does a lot of counseling of trauma care and so forth. And we do that often by getting people to draw pictures because they can often draw what they can't express verbally. And this 13-year-old, he said, I dream of becoming an architect and go back to my city and rebuild it. I saw another picture drawn by a seven-year-old. He had been asked to draw a picture of his home. He lived in an apartment block, so he drew this large sort of rectangle with a wonky roof and not quite square windows and doors, as you would expect a seven-year-old to draw. In the sky above his apartment, he drew an aeroplane and a rocket. And in the street, a tank and a man with a gun. But the most telling part was in the street. He had drawn human body parts, a head, a hand, a leg, and lots of blood, because that was his memory of home. But things are improving. Here we have Pastor Amar returning to his church in Karakosh, he and a colleague got together some pieces of wood, put it together in a makeshift cross, climbed the bomb-damaged church building and erected it on the roof, reclaiming it for God and God's kingdom. And just outside, Mosul Open Doors has opened a stone factory, employing some 60 people. That's 60 families now with a regular income. And if any of you are supporters of Open Doors, you will know that two years ago, we did something special with this young man, Noah. He was 13 years old at the time. He had spent the previous four years in a camp in, just outside Erbil in northern Iraq. And here he is with some of the other children and Pastor Daniel, living in tents for a while and then in porter cabins that were put up in the church gardens. When ISIS had left, he went back with his family to Karamlez. And this is his bedroom. 
everything, his furniture, his clothes, his toys, were all burnt. As he sat on what remained of his metal bed frame, he looked on the floor and he saw his marbles. He picked them up one by one, dusted them off, and we took Noah and his marbles on the holiday of a lifetime. But it wasn't really a holiday. We took him and his father to to the United States, to New York, to the United Nations. Because that year, Open Doors organized a petition in support of Christians in Syria and Iraq, a petition that received over 800,000 signatures. And if any of you sign that, thank you. Because it was presented to the United Nations. And within weeks of that event, the UN released 55 million American dollars to help religious minorities rebuild their communities in Syria and Iraq. Without that petition, we believe that would not have happened. So if you're asked to sign a petition and you think, oh, what difference will it make? If you get enough people, it can make a big difference. And back in Karam Les, we've helped Noah and many thousands of other families rebuild their home. New walls, new windows, new furnishings, although not to my liking. But never mind. And this is his family outside their home. But this is just a part of a seven-year prayer campaign that Open Doors has launched for the Middle East. And in that campaign, we say, it is unthinkable that Islamic extremism should drive the church from the Middle East, the birthplace of Christianity. Hope for the Middle East is a seven-year campaign uniting the global church to ensure every person in the Middle East, no matter what their faith, has a home, a future, and a voice. That was launched three years ago, so we have four years to go. The last time we launched a seven-year prayer campaign was in 1982, and it was a time when Christians were suffering terribly in the communist world, in the USSR and other countries. After seven years of global prayer, that campaign culminated in the autumn of 1989. And you, I'm sure, will remember what happened in the autumn of 1989. The Berlin Wall came down. People were free. Christians were free to worship and to gather once more. So who knows what God will do at the end of this seven-year prayer campaign for our Christian brothers and sisters in the Middle East. We have a lot to do. I've just shared with you some of many, many stories that I've come across. Stories from the 50 countries where Open Doors is, is key to the well-being of our Christian brothers and sisters. But what can we do? What can you do? I'd like to challenge you to do a number of things. The first thing is to, to pray. Prayer is so important. Prayer is powerful. Prayer works. And when I told those families in Chibok about Maggie and her friends in, in Bobby Tracy praying, how gobsmacked they were. You know, it's so encouraging to our persecuted brothers and sisters to know that we, you, are praying regularly for them. And to help you in that, each year, along with the World Watch list, we produce our World Watch guide to the top 50 countries. It's just got a few facts about each country and a few prayer points. The 2019 one is on the table at the back. 
Take one, please. And in fact, you can contact our office or look on the website. The new 2021 will be available in February. There's also a copy of our current magazine. And if you want particularly to help Christians in North Korea, there is this little booklet that costs £10. And you might think, £10 for that? Well, with that £10, we will smuggle a Bible to a believing Christian inside North Korea. So you can regard this as a little gift from us. It's a daily devotional with stories from around the world and with passages of Scripture that will actually feed your heart. So please, for £10, you can have one of those, and we will provide a Bible for a North Korean Christian. And if, if you feel moved from what you've heard this morning and want to help financially, then there again is a basket at the back. There are also some gift aid envelopes. So if you're a UK taxpayer, anything you give, even if it's £10 for one of these, can be gift aided. So rather than putting the £10 in the basket, just pop it in an envelope, fill in the details, making sure you tick the gift aid box because we can get another £2.50 back from the government for each £10 that you pay. And not forgetting, a British pound goes a long way. I mentioned £200 to provide a borehole in Nigeria. You saw then in Iraq food and medicines being distributed. It cost us only £42 to provide for a whole family of five for a month. If you go down to the supermarket with your trolley, you'll probably spend 100 quid. And a few days later, you'll fill it up again. But for just £42, we can provide for a whole family for a month. So I invite you to give and to give generously. But whatever you decide to do, that's between you and the Lord as to how he wants you to respond today. And I'm not going to be rushing off afterwards. I should be over there by the table. So if anybody wants to come and talk to me or ask me any questions, please do. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. Thank you for all that you're going to do in the future. For not me, not for open doors, but for our brothers and sisters who can't ask for themselves. Thank you.